Hello and welcome to Thank You Come Again. This is an e-commerce podcast sponsored by Wonderment, where we dive into the actual strategies that leading D2C brands are using to not only make their customers come back and buy again, but have the best possible customer experiences. I'm Blake and Burl. I started my career as a retention marketer, and now I'm focused on being a shepherd of knowledge for you and others on all things retention marketing. You won't find any top 10 guru guides here. Instead, I want you to walk away from each episode with battle-tested and actionable insights that's going to help you to move a needle forward and driving repeat business. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And without further ado, let's dive into today's Hello, friends, episode. and welcome back to this week's episode of Thank You Come Again, brought to you by Wonderment. Today, I've got the pleasure of being joined by Jake Carls, the co-founder and rainmaker at the consumer packaged goods company, Midday Squares. We're going to be talking about Jake's journey in CPG, the Midday Squares story, approaching customer retention in the CPG space, and offer some wisdom to current and aspiring CPG and DTC founders. But first, before we get into any of that, who is Jake Carls and who is Midday Squares? How are you doing, my man? Super fired up to be on uh, on the podcast. Uh, super, super jazzed and, and actually energized. I just came off an injury so and treatments for my injury. So my, my butt is sore. For those of you who don't know, my butt is really, really sore. Got some needles in there. Um, anyways, yeah, my, my name is Jake. I'm one of the co-founders of Midday Squares. I'm 29 years old and um, I go by Rainmaker because my whole aura of life is that I build relationships. I make people feel something deeply. And my purpose is to go out there and spread good vibes and show the world that you can win by being unapologetically yourself every single day. And you can win at the highest level. So what we're trying to do at Midday Squares is build the next largest chocolate snacking company in the world. We want to be what you know Hershey's or Mars Mondelez would look like if it launched in 2023, something that was, you know, more culturally relevant, but also with better for you chocolate snacks that are functional. And I like to say our first product line was the first functional chocolate bar. So imagine taking a chocolate bar that is delicious and indulgence, dark chocolate, real chocolate, and then having a baby with a protein bar, but getting rid of all the junk that's in protein bars, the, the artificial flavors, the additives, the preservatives. And yeah, we made it a chocolate bar, your perfect afternoon snack. So that's who we are. And that's who I am. I love it. So much energy. Uh, and just such a cool story. I think I've been following you, Jake, for a little bit on LinkedIn, uh, consuming your content, seeing the journey. It's been awesome. But I actually have never tried Midday Squares before. So I decided to change that this weekend. I went to my local Target and picked up a couple of these guys. Um, I've got the, the peanut butter one here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy this during our conversation. Uh, but I'm super stoked to have this because I, it's uh, like you said, you know, it's kind of this, this function, this idea of a functional chocolate bar is a uh, I've never seen it before, but it's such a cool concept. And I mean, such a better way to snack and, and have something that, um, you know, satisfies your craving, but obviously isn't going to leave you with all that guilt as well. Um, so I'm curious, what's your favorite uh, midday squares? Is this is this a good one is, as a first one to try? So that's the fan favorite. Um, I'm actually allergic to nuts and peanuts, so I can't even try my products, okay. um, which is a little Man. sad. Um, so I can't be part of the R&D. My sister, my brother-in-law take that, 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 that side of the business 100%. But um, yeah, no, the fan favorite's peanut butter. And right now we just launched a cookie dough flavor, which isn't in Target yet, but it will be soon. And that is so far the fan favorite here in Canada um, as it's been launched out and rolled out through retail. So yeah, th again, they're nostalgic tasting items that are darker chocolate um, that have high protein, high fiber to keep you full and uh, energized for the time being. 
Love it. Yeah. I, um, I went to a couple of farmer's markets uh, to look for this and they were all sold out. So if that says anything about the, the product and the demand for it, I um, was lucky to find this at Target. Um, but before we get into the conversation, Jake, and before I dive into this, I, I wanted to ask you a few rapid fire questions, get to know you a little bit more, let our audience get to know you a little bit more too. Um, so unrelated to e-commerce, but just really to get to know you, um, what brand do you derive the most inspiration from? Nike. Why Nike? The storytelling is powerful. Have you read, um, I think it's Shoe Dog, the, the story yeah. of Phil Knight? Okay. Yeah. Great yeah, everyone, everyone recommends that book. That's a great, a great brand. I like you definitely uh, a lot to derive from. Awesome. Um, best musician of all time? Freddie Mercury. Ooh, that's a good one. Any, any favorite Queen songs or just generally Freddie Mercury? Freddie Mercury. Another One Bites the Dust is good. That's a that great song. <laughs> Love it. Uh, on that note too, best song to get hyped to? This song called Jerusalemma. Jerusalem. Okay. I'll have to look that one up. I've never heard of that yeah, song before. It's, it's a different one. I, I just recently discovered it, but it fires me the fuck up. <laughs> nice. Nice. I was on a podcast recently and uh, another one bites the dust was my choice, but uh, any, yeah, any song in general can, can hype you up. Um, if you could have one gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, to get a message out to everyone in the world, what would that message be and why? Block out the noise and big. Um, and the reason why that's so powerful to me, at least, is because anything you do in life, there's going to be noise around you from family, friends, acquaintances, people you don't know that, you know, their noise isn't your noise. And if you take in their noise, it might deflect you from the game you're supposed to be playing. And a lot of entrepreneurs go through this idea of starting a business and then listening to everybody. And they might have good intentions. People might have great intentions for you, but they're not living your story. They're not living your, your business and they'll give whatever they want to give. And if you value, if you take that information and apply it and never actually identify your own gut that has strength and actually could follow your own gut, you'll be in trouble. Um, over time, the pressure will just be too hard at one point or too tough that it will just break down. So I would advise you to just you know, block out the noise and trust your gut. That is the most powerful muscle you have. It's a great message. Um, I was talking to Eric Bandholds, the founder of Beard Brand, and he was talking about um, if you fall into that trap, you're kind of, you know, tripping over uh, a quarter to pick up a dime, so to speak, and you're kind of losing sight of your own kind of journey. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a great message. I, I love that. Um, best recent purchase of something under $100? I bought a book called Healing the Back by John E. Serena. Serena. He's uh, this idea of the mind-body connection. It, I read the book in a day and a half. It is so powerful. Um, a, if you're going through an injury, but B, um, the idea of how powerful your mind is in terms of how it can cause pain through anxiety and, and, um, and fear and anger and repressed emotions and how it actually can control um, the pain function in your body. So the idea of the physical pain is a lot of the time derived by your emotional stress, which is really interesting. I, I, I didn't believe it at first. I was like, this is whack. Um, and then I read it and I was like really interested and intrigued by it. And I'm reading more into this now, this subject specifically of mind body. That's awesome. I'll definitely have to link out to that in the show notes if anyone's curious. Um, and it makes total sense too. I think um, I've always been fascinated by that mind body connection. Well, cool. Thanks for taking the time to, to indulge me on that. Um, now to kind of dive into to the meat of this discussion, um, something that's really fascinated me about you, the Midday Squares brand and the team is how amazing and inspirational your story is, the personal brand that you guys are building, a lot of those things on social, you're sharing your journey, 
Um, it's just been a, a really a pleasure to watch a brand just dive headfirst into this. You know, you're sharing the good, the ups, the downs, the good vibes, the bad vibes, all these different things, and just showing what it's like to have transparency. Um, I don't think enough entrepreneurs are really tapping into this. But again, you've dove in headfirst into this as the resident social personality at Midday Squares. Um, has this always come naturally to you, Jake? And how did you arrive at this idea to really share your journey and and build community? Over the last 10 years of my decade of entrepreneurship, um, I, I launched three businesses. Two have failed. One has worked. Um, the current one's working. Um, what I learned during those journeys is that the one thing that stayed common that was successful throughout the journey was the idea that storytelling, at a, when you were telling a good story, you actually have a potential to build a community around the story. And what I didn't do well in my previous businesses was I wasn't a good operator, but I was good at storytelling. I was good at making noise and building that brand and community. So when I joined Midday Squares as a third partner, my, my mandate was build this brand. And my sister, my brother-in-law came up to me and said, well, we got a great product ready to go. It's all product market fit. It's got the data driven. It's, it's, it's ready to rock, but we need a good strategy. And I said, it's very simple. If we want to win in grocery, there's 40,000 products on a shelf. You know, you have 30 to 40,000, depending on the supermarket that you're going to. And we don't have the budgets that, you know, a company like Hershey's might have, you know, in terms of marketing to spend on real estate in the store to spend on, you know, you know, market samplings, de demoing the whole nine yards. So I told my partner, I said, what if we take the best from the entertainment world and we actually melange it, mix it together with the CPG world? And I felt that, you know, when you go to a grocery store, there wasn't that much emotional connection with brands. Like, you know, you go and you buy, it's a commodity, you eat the product, you know, you buy it for a low price, you buy it for the function. And that's, that's all. You're not obsessed with it. You're not talking about it after. But I felt when I went to the cosmetic stores or I watched my fiance go to the cosmetic store like Sephora or, you know, go to Starbucks or go to like a Nike store, there was this powerful moment with the consumer and the brand, which there was this like indirect communication, which is powerful in terms of how obsessive the consumer became with the brand and how they felt part of it. And they wanted to be part of it and want to share about it. And it wasn't just buying the physical item for the commodity. It was buying it because they liked the brand. And I said to my partners, if we could do that in the CPG space, in the food and beverage space, we can win. We can win the grocery store with, with a 10th or a 16th or a 20th of the budget of these larger corporations and still gain new customers and build. And that's when I looked at, you know, Hollywood for answers. And I looked at three TV shows, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Shark Tank. And then I looked at, not, I looked at Elon Musk's social media following. And the reason why I did these three things is because, you know, Kardashians is a family business and they drive a ton of drama and it drives views. Then I looked at Shark Tank because Shark Tank is finally celebritizing entrepreneurship. They're trying to show the entrepreneur rather than just the product and then the story. So I said, what if we just took that and brought it into deep depth of like showing the behind the curtain of building a business, like literally showing you good, bad, ugly and mm -hmm. transparently showing. It. And then what if we acted like Elon in the sense of just being ourselves unapologetically, like, you know, Elon's himself, 50% love the guy, 50% don't like him. <laughs> and he has a super fandom for his 50% though. And I said, the three of us are characters. So if we act like ourselves and actually be ourselves consistently and not be like a typical executive or CEO or founder, people will resonate and they'll relate. And that's when I put the whole strategy together. I said, we are going to build an, uh, we are going to build a reality show on entrepreneurship using social media as the vehicle to release the reality show. 
And it worked, man. It started getting hype. It started getting consumers to go to the grocery store. And when they see the product, they actually feel like they know us. They right. see the product. They don't see a chocolate bar. They see, oh, I love this brand so much. I want to buy it. I want to talk about it. I want to share it. I want to post about it. And that's when it came down to just telling a great fucking story that was real and authentic. Today's episode of the Psycho Podcast is brought to you by Wonderman, the CX platform that powers Shopify's best CPG brands. Brands like Feastables, Boxu, Ourobora, and Kettle and Fire use Wonderman to improve repeat customer sales, reduce shipping support tickets, and even minimize the negative impact of things that are unique to CPG like food spoilage, damage items, and so much more. Whether you are looking to improve your customer experience, your retention marketing, or both, Wonderment will turn your post-purchase shipping experiences into a channel that helps you to bring customers back to buy again and again. Not a CPG brand, but still interested in what Wonderment can do for you? No worries. Wonderment works with over 1,000 of Shopify's best brands across every vertical. So as long as you ship goods or care about the delivery experience for your customers, which if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you do, Wonderment is a good fit for you. Tech of Podcast listeners can receive a free trial of Wonderment by visiting wonderment.com forward slash demo and let them know that Blake sent you. And now back to the show. I love that. There's so much good stuff to unpack within that and the inspiration that you draw. It's so clear. Like you mentioned, like Kardashian, Shark Tank, uh, Elon Musk, all those different things, but doing it in your own way too. I think that's that's really like, definitely um, you derive inspiration, but I really feel like you're creating this sort of like it's it's almost crazy to think that no CPG company before has really embraced this before, but I love that you guys are taking this and running with it and creating a new playbook almost. I mean, I look at, by the way, this is amazing. I absolutely love this peanut butter one. I'm going to have to go buy more. Um, but I mean, even the packaging too, like, you know, three, three of you are on this. You can't see this, but three of you are on this. And I'm like, I know these people. I've watched their content. I've consumed it. And I just creates that connection. Um, I love it, man. I, I'm curious, like, what sort of impact do you think, you talked a little bit about it already, but what sort of impact do you think this has had on the growth and the overall journey of Midday Squares? Yeah, for sure. So what's happening is basically people are watching. They're curious. They're like, what is this wacky brand? Who are these weird people? Why are they showing me therapy sessions and crying and, and weakness and all these things? And then you're like, oh, shit, well, this relates to my life. Mm -hmm. And you start watching more and then you start watching more videos. You're like, wow, this is actually authentically who these people are. And they're just hustling to build a big, a big chocolate company. So then you subconsciously go and support us by two ways, by one, there's one of two ways or both ways is you either tell people about it or post about it, or you go buy the product. And what we've noticed is the content piece has driven all these organic eyeballs and ears to listen and watch and be so involved that they actually become so intertwined and part of our story that at the end of the day, when they go to that grocery store, they're, they feel almost obliged to buy it. And it's this pull-in strategy rather than this push strategy. And I think that it's been responsible for us. How we raised our money was through the story, sharing the story. It's how we've gotten written up in all the earned media and Forbes, Business Insider, you know, every type of magazine, newspapers, TV, global news, all, everything, US Today and USA Today. And I think that the idea is the third thing was retailers have taken us on because they found our story. And they're like, wow, this company's so real. I want to bring them into the store, the excitement, bring that energy, that authenticity, which is what the consumer actually wants. And then you reinforce that most importantly with a great product. And when you have that, you start to grow. You start to get rapid growth or naturally because people are curious and mm -hmm. then they try and it meets their expectation or goes above their expectation, which then reinforces why they love us even more. 
So if you have a shit product, it's a completely different story. You might get them to buy the product once and then they're not coming back again. But if you have a good product, you reinforce it and become part of their life. And then they become part of the story. I'll never forget. We go on the streets, you know, in, ma in major cities like Montreal, Toronto, New York, you know, Los Angeles, Austin, you know, Houston, Florida, and we'll get spotted from our customers. And I don't like even call them customers. I call them fans and they always want a picture and stuff. And it's like, almost like we're famous. We're not actually famous and I don't ever consider myself famous, but the idea is, is people know us. They actually right. know us because nothing's off the table. Everything's uncensored and unfiltered. So you don't, you're not seeing a character. You're seeing a real person and how a real person, these three real people are building a business. It's the realness. It's the rawness. It's all of it. Um, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right in saying too, it's like, uh, the product meets on the expectation, but then you're doing all these other things to create that awareness, that connectivity, the community as well. Um, it's such a cool kind of this approach I think that you've taken to this. And I've seen you say multiple times, uh, your motto is get comfortable being uncomfortable. What does that mean to you? And what sort of opportunities do you think with being uncomfortable is given your journey at Midday Squares? I love that. So I think that we as a society believe or have been taught that to remain in a comfort zone to remain in you know the path the path that's easier that's less risky and i was part of that i, I was and I, until end of college i was on that journey of just you know stay in that narrow path don't do anything crazy don't don't try to be bold um boldness doesn't reward you and you know not worth the risk you got to have a stable job if a family and that's that's all and when I finally stepped out and made a decision in the third year, end of third year of college, I decided that I wanted to build, start a business. That was the first time I act, actually acted for myself. And I basically said, I'm doing this because I want to, not for my parents, not for my friends, not to prove everyone anything, but because I actually want to build something. And I stepped into a really unknown territory and that unknown territory felt so liberating. It felt so alive. It felt so, you know, painful. There was so much different emotions from good and bad but it was so different than the average or what I was feeling before the neutral from before. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself after that moment, I said, I'll never ever step stay in a comfort zone ever again, because of this experience that I just experienced. It was like euphoric. It was like magical. I can't even, it's the weirdest thing. So every day now I approach my life that if I see some zone of discomfort or I see something that is not familiar with me, I'll actually step into it, even if it's bad. And what I'll do is I'll experience it. And I always say, going into those unknown zones leads to an outlier output. So if you're out there, you're at least going to be something good or bad, but you're not going to be in the middle. And bad doesn't mean failure or, or, or weakness or loss. Bad just means you might've learned something and actually grown from it and, and, and taken it and been through it. So I always say, step in your zones of discomfort, test it out, trust, build your gut to be strong, to be able to do that. And again, it goes back to the billboard, block out that noise. Because if you stay focused on that noise, I promise you, you're staying in that comfort zone in that bubble. Um, and you'll never see outside of that. That's a great message. You know, and I think so much good can come from stepping out of that comfort zone, obviously. Um, but to being able to learn a lot about yourself in that journey, you know, even if that outcome isn't, you know, what you had hoped for, at least you, you, you gave that effort, you tried, and you learn over time. I think, you know, we as humans are such, uh, you know, creatures of habit. And sometimes it, it takes a little bit of going against the grain to to step out of a comfort zone. But I love that. Um, I want to transition into now more about customer retention and some of the business growth as well with Midday Squares. I think I saw the other month that you said you sold uh, over a million bars in the last month. Is that is that true? Yeah. 
that's awesome. Huge congrats on that. that. That's an amazing milestone, I'm sure, for you and the team. Um, as you've grown the business, how have you approached growing customer retention? I think you've kind of talked about some of th these things already, but I'm just curious, any more thoughts yeah. kind of around that? So right now we're focused so much on retail, believe it or not, rather than D2C. I think we're 75% um, retail, 25% D2C or 70-30. And um, the focus is, again, invest in our own content organically and build long-term value in the sense of, you know, adding a value of an emotion or adding a value of education to the consumer. And they'll keep coming back for more. And what that does is eventually they want to purchase because eventually they're like, well, I got to try the product. Eventually I've seen them so much. So that is our way to actually get the customer, believe it or not, is investing in our own internal content. Um, it's salaried people, you know, editors, videographers, showrunners, TV producers internally. So it spends, it spends a lot of money doing that. But then it always rewards us with our growth in, in our retail, a growth in our D2C. Consumers just buy more because they're fans. They're not customers. They actually love what we do. And I think that that's been our strategy since day one, and it's continuing to work. And I and we also feather that in with a bit of influencer work with authentic influencers that we like um, that go and they talk about our product and they drive people to our website or, or retailers, depending on what we choose. Totally. Yeah. There's, it's, no, it's, that's there's, that. no, there's no strategy to retain the customer other than just tell our story, continuously tell our story and keep delivering great product. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on there. It's that flywheel effect too. You're investing in these things to, um, you know, even if someone's, you know, engaging with your content, but they've never purchased, keeping them in that ecosystem, they're going to purchase eventually. You know, I mean, I, I, I love to support brands. I hate to say, but I haven't purchased midday squares until now, but you know, now seeing the content and going and buying the product. And like you said, it meets the demand or meets the expectation of the consumer. Um, I'm going back and buying more after this. This is, a, is an awesome product, but I think it's just it, what you said, um, you know, is really, really important to keep in mind. I'm curious too, um, if there are any things that you think about, like within the content that are sort of like cornerstones and that customer experience and ultimately creating a long lasting customer. Is it, is there like any specific kind of angles or things that you think are more important than others? Is it, is everything important? I'm, I'm sort of curious for any in, uh, insight there. Definitely authenticity um, and boldness. So, I, I, I always say, don't try to please everybody. Pick your crew and, and pick your cronies or your, your, or the people you want to, you, that you, that you want to talk to and talk to them. Like for us, you know, if we were to please everybody, we wouldn't say the word fuck on TV, you know, or we wouldn't say that because that would aggravate people, but we are remaining true to ourselves and that authenticity exactly. will shine with a certain group. And it's the same example with Elon Musk. He's loved by half. He's hated by the other half. So like, you know, you look at that, he's still one of the most successful entrepreneurs out there. Um, and he's done it with that vilifying effect or vilifying fact, but he has super fans and the super fans that he talks to are die hard. They go to war for him. And it's the same thing with political leaders. You have, you know, some that are die hard fans that will do anything. And for us, it's, that's how we built our business is we're going to be authentic to us, even if it costs us, you know, whatever amount of percentage, because at the end of the day, there's nothing worse than doing something that's not true to you. And I think that authenticity is what's resonating deeply with the customer, which is making them turn into a fan and not just a transaction. And the fan will stay for a long time. It's like a fan that follows somebody on tour. Um, they'll mm -hmm. pay the concert tickets, they'll buy the merchandise, they'll tell everybody about it and they'll share it on their social media rather than just a customer who listens to the music on their radio or Spotify. Totally. And I think, um, you know, 
people who have something interesting to say are typically industry disruptors and, and those that want to disrupt industry have to have something unique and stay true to who they are. I think about, you know, you, you mentioned Elon Musk and there's a lot of great brand examples that you can you know, think of as well. But I think it's one of the things that always stood out to me is just like, you guys are unapologetically you and everything that you do. And I think that that is really important uh, when you think about like creating sort of that disruptive brand that takes on an industry. I mean, you guys are competing with the Hershey's and, and of the world. And, and that definitely takes a fresh perspective to um, just be, be new and, and bring something new to, to consumers, I think. Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, man, like you're going to start to see the next five years of on of all marketing is going to go towards being authentic to whatever that means to the brand or the individuals, you know, part of the brand. And if you're not going to be authentic, I, you're not going to win that race. Even if you spend more millions of dollars, it's not going to grab the attention. Attention today is based on if the consumer wants to listen and engage with you. If they don't, they can block, unfollow, unsubscribe, delete with the snap of a finger. That wasn't sure. the case 15 years ago. So now it's a whole new game where it evens out the playing field, not because of marketing budgets, but because of who's going to be the best storyteller and who's going to be the most authentic with a, with obviously a good product. That's, that should be a given. Absolutely. That's the game. That's definitely the game. I think that, that, uh, that playbook is definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think in the next five years, we're going to see more and more of that. And I think, um, it's really important for anyone thinking about their own brand, like keep it true to who they are and their core values and their beliefs. It's not going to be the same what you're doing versus someone else is doing, but I think there's lessons and themes that we can all kind of learn from that. Um, I'm sort of curious. So you mentioned D2C, you know, being a smaller part of the business, but you signed up to ship chocolate across long distances. Um, and I'm curious if you've ever had any issues with products melting and how maybe that's led to maybe negative customer experiences you've had to kind of figure out if there's been any kind of snafus there. Oh yeah. Shipping chocolate. That's also a refrigerated product is very hard in the summertime. It is extremely hard, especially those warmer climates. Um, so we ship with insulation and a reusable ice pack. But even that, there are sometimes cases where it does melt, but you know, it just costs us, you know, we send a new one um, and we refund and we do all this stuff to again make that customer experience great. Um, that being said, again, the authenticity relieves pressure, believe it or not. Um, for us, we talk about these problems that we have. Um, on social to explain like, here's the difficulties we're going through. And, and we put mm -hmm. our cards on the table. That way, when the time comes and there is issues, the pressure relief is a lot less than when if you weren't to do that. And I, I always sure. give a great example. We did a price increase in June 2022, a 27% increase. And, and a pack change went from two squares to one square per pack and a price change. And we shared with the consumer why. Here's the reason we showed them every single thing of what went up in cost, how it was hurting the business and how much months we had left if we didn't change it. And when we shared that video it went viral and if within our community and our community actually supported it, they were like, yo, we get it. Like we're still buying the squares. We appreciate the honesty and the transparency. And I always say to my partners, that's a prime example of being honest. And then mm -hmm. the pressure valve is released. So you don't have to worry as much of the negativity or the customer experience, you know, team getting overflown with information and bad vibes. This way, it's still a minimal amount, but again, it's minimized. And all you have to do is just be yourself and be real and share what's actually happening. And I'm not saying show trade secrets, but I'm saying show what, why you made certain decisions, especially if it's going to affect the consumer at a deep level.
hundred percent. I love that that uh, analogy of a pressure release valve and being able to yeah be transparent about it, but also just continue to be real. I think it, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about just you know transparency and being um, you know unapologetically you. I think and and that's a great way to just build relationships with your customers. I think about. Um, at Wonderment, we work with the Mr. Beast brand Feastables, and they ship chocolate across the entire country. They're having melted chocolate, and we've helped them to be more proactive on the communication side and to take some of those things on and actually help solve that problem for them. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, like you're shipping perishable goods, you're going to need to have some other kind of things in place. So I was more so curious just to kind of get some kind of uh, insight into what you might have, have been uh, going through there. This, yeah, the supply chain side of refrigerated chocolates or perishable items is difficult and, and no one's figured it out perfectly yet. And it's just, you got to be obsessed with trying to learn it, learn it every day. And eventually, you know, we realized retail was actually more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we put a lot of our resources towards retailers, where we would start to build serious relationships and understand the supply chain there, which is actually easier to ship the product and get the product to the consumer at a, at a, at a less expensive cost let's call it totally yeah i know um the more i've talked to other you know cpg founders also you know viewing d to c sort of like as the yeah they can get the content out they can you know some of the more loyal customers might go there or the opposite actually discovery and then go into like i did and go buy it in stores so um yeah that that, that flywheel definitely goes both ways um i'm curious as how you and the team have approached retention and say the start of the company to 2023, has that changed at all? Has it always been the same strategy? The strategy of the storytelling has remained and remained the same since day one. Now it's just gotten more sophisticated and, and more, more focused on how we tell a story, not just to people in Montreal, where we're from, but to, mm. uh, you know, North America, Canada, United States. And, um, you know, at first we had a sample program for 25 cents a bar just to get trial. Um, but, it, it was successful, but it would cost so much money uh, to do it and ship the product, one product for 25 cents. It was outrageous. So we stopped doing that. And originally I thought that would hurt the business, but in the end it didn't hurt people. People buy, buy up the squares. And yes, if they could do trial now, the difference is that trial is available in many different retailers, like, like Whole Foods or Sprouts or Target, and sure. they can just go get it at their local spot. Before that wasn't the case. So we had to do this sample program to retain the consumer, sorry, to get the consumer. And then the mm-hmm. retention was hopefully that they liked the product and they liked our brand and wanted to continue buying, but they'd have to go buy a bulk purchase after that. So I think that's where the shift happened was just the, the way that the purchasing happens now. But in the end, um, what's really retaining the consumer is, is again, product market fit, number one, and number two, a story that relates to the consumer. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's that's a great spot on. Um, I think that I've heard that is that similar uh, narrative. I think from other uh, CPG founders as well. And one thing I wanted to ask you: a lot of founders say the best way to grow a business is to just talk to your customers. Um, but what does that mean, maybe to you? And how do you effectively then talk to your customers and create a better business for it? So I think there's two 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 prongs to that. I think. I think it's very important to talk to your customers, but I also think it's important to have your own identity um, within the organization that's powerful enough to make big decisions or small decisions um, without the influence of the customer. And the reason being I say that is because sometimes customers say they want something, but they don't actually want it when you look at all the data. And so for us, like for a new flavor launch, we will ask our social following, even though we only have like combined of all our platforms, 350,000. We'll ask them, what flavor do you want? And then what we'll do is we'll look at the data that comes in, the thousands on thousands of results, 
and we'll correlate it back to the public data on retail sales in the current space. So what flavors are currently selling the most? Is it coconut? Is it peanut butter? Is it is it cookie dough? And we'll then say, okay, how similar are these two data points? Is is our consumer want the highest velocity item or is it not in the top five? And if it's not, mm -hmm. then we have trouble actually launching it because we realize they might want it in the moment, but they don't actually consistently want to purchase. And when you make a business, you need the repurchase and you need the you need the velocities to be extremely strong in store because CPG is a volume business. You need mm -hmm. to do a tremendous amount of volume to actually, you know, have something meaningful or significant. So I always say is we, we use our, our social media to talk to the customers, surveying them and et cetera. Then we go to the public data that we buy um, from like Spins or Nielsen and we look through it to compare it. And then when we come to the comparison result, that's what we make a decision on. Got it. Uh, makes total sense. Yeah. The, I have also heard, you know, um, other founders kind of say too, like they'll talk with customers and get that feedback. And, but at the same time, you can't, you know, you have to stay true to your business too. And sometimes what the customer says, like maybe they actually won't end up buying what they ask for. And then you kind of have to consider those, uh, different factors as well, but that's great to hear kind of how you approach that. As we wrap up, I want to transition into one kind of final segment and just offer some advice. Uh, I think we've offered a lot of great advice already for, you know, current or aspiring founders, but how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have like a favorite failure of yours? Yeah. So two failures. So number one is when we did our transition from two square to one square in June, we were literally transitioning the whole company, basically from a price increase to an ingredient deck in change to a, uh, a sizing change. And when we did the, when we launched it, we just went to a store to scan our barcode. Um, the UPC code at one of our retailers near our house here, and it scanned well. And then we ordered the three to 4 million packs. And when they came in, we shipped them all out to all the retailers. I think a million five bars went out. And basically we started getting messages saying that the barcode doesn't scan in store. And long story short, that causes a very big domino effect because mm -hmm. if it doesn't register in the store, what they could do to sell the product is just put it as a grocery item. So it doesn't actually register as a midday square product being sold it registers as a, just a grocery item and that doesn't count the inventory properly in their system. So it doesn't trigger reorders. So no Got reorders it. were being triggered. You know, we went from doing like one point, you know, six, $7 million months to doing $400,000 because of this fucking change. And the reason <laughs> what we learned, what we learned is when you do a UPC code change, the first thing you got to do is there's an easy software on the website on Google. If you just type in UPC code, you know, check, they certify it before it actually goes for 29 bucks or something. So that 29 mm -hmm. bucks, that $29 non-purchase costed us maybe a million to a million five in opportunity cost um, of what happened from that. And the second thing is we were developing a flavor called coconut chocolate. And we spent a year and a half doing it and we were banging our heads on it. And we really wanted to get it out. We really want, we were trying to make it happen. And it just wasn't fuck yeah. It didn't stay true to our principle of being so epic. That we ended up just, even though it cost us so much from the R&D, we just called it quits. And what mm -hmm. we learned from that was our actual second flavor, our next flavor, which was cookie dough, the learnings from the way that we did the coconut in terms of the textures was the main reason why cookie dough is thriving. So we learned from the R&D mistakes, actually, that ended up becoming the next R&D product. And mm -hmm. I think that that's why it's never a waste. And even if you have to shut something down... Yes, it might be a short-term loss in terms of capital, but you don't even know what you possibly learned from that, right? And you got to be open-minded to seeing, 
you know, not being negative, sorry, and being positive and seeing what you can take and what you could learn from. I think that there's so many failures and we are, and, and moments of, you know, hardship that are going to happen. And you got to try to look for that silver lining. There might not always be one, but at least try to look for it. And once you do appreciate it, and it's a privilege that you got to go through that. That's a great, great outlook on it. And I think you're absolutely right too. I mean, obviously, you know, with, with the one product not working out, opened up another door to just, you know, take that into the next product that you launch, take those learnings. Um, and I'm the UPC code team, man. That's a, that's a, that's a, uh, unfortunate snafu, but I think it's a good lesson learned and definitely anyone who is in a similar boat, definitely pay the 29 bucks and, and get that, get that <laughs> software. <laughs> but, um, I appreciate that, man. Um, has there been any bad recommendations that you hear others in the CPG or D2C space making to other founders? I think the yardsticking is a problem in CPG. I think everyone's trying to be like everybody else. I think the innovation is just, there's a lack of it. And I, I don't mean to sound dire or, or, or depressing, but I think the innovation in CPG has, has not increased or progressed the way it should progress. Um, and the reason being is because we have a lot of co-manufacturers that literally make the product for everybody. They do the same mm -hmm. The machinery is the same. So the actual processes have to be very similar. So a lot of products just have different packaging or innovative marketing, but they don't have so much innovation on product. And that's why, you know, the grocery store is still dominated by 10 brands. They own about 70 plus percent, you know, like the Mars of the world and the Hershey's, mm -hmm. the Nestle's. So it's like, I think we as a, as a, as a next generation need to invest in innovation, even if it costs money, like we built our own facility in Montreal. Yeah. It costed us $4.1 million to build, but that allows us to innovate and make products that are so different from the consumer's perspective and our perspective. When they bite into it, it's the texture changes, the flavor profiles, it's the functionality. These things allow us to do different things than the commands do. And I think that the trade-off to just say, oh, I need to scale quickly because I need to sell my company. They're missing out that in the end, your company will be better off if you have a more foundational business rather than a business that's based on a house of cards. So I think that that's the dire warning for the CPG space that I've noticed. That's a really good, good one. I, I totally agree. I, um, you know, I, I've consulted for some CPG companies and I, I know like, you know, with the manufacturing, they're like, yeah, they're going to squeeze me in between, you know, like five other, you know, uh, products that they're making this week. And I'm just like, I know it's a big investment. Not everyone might have that privilege of doing that, you know, upfront. But I think the investment that you guys have made in your factory gives you that flexibility to be that disruptive brand, to try things out, to just do it on your own terms. I think that's, that's really commendable that you guys have done that. And it lets us tell a great story. When you have a manufacturing plant, there is drama, my friend. There is oh, tons sure. of drama every day. So it's been the hell <laughs> it, it's taken though. It, it made my sister and brother-in-law cry themselves to see like 30 plus nights of the year, just because of the the pain that it takes to build something that's never been built before. Yeah, it's that sweat equity for sure. And you gotta, you gotta kind of uh, take it, take it for what it is. But I think it's also a really great opportunity that you guys have embarked on. Um, what, um, what advice I mean, you've given a lot of amazing advice already, but anyone who might be struggling right now as an entrepreneur, feeling discouraged or frustrated, um, what might you say to them? So I learned that and it took a lot of therapy Believe it or not, uh, I go to therapy once, twice a week. Uh, my partners and I go once together and then we, we go individually. But what I learned was you are your superpower. So if you are not being truly yourself, you are actually creating a less opportunity for success. When you are truly yourself and you're embracing it and living it, 
you're giving yourself the best opportunity of winning. Once you notice that, once you realize that and embrace it, you're basically unstoppable because no one can copy you. They can copy the products you can create. They can copy the marketing you do. They can copy the packaging, but they can't copy you. So once you realize that, you become unstoppable and your fear of what others think just disappears. And that's what I've learned. I used to be so scared of what others thought of me and I wouldn't be myself. And I realized I was miserable and I wasn't, I wasn't authentic. And I was, I, I was cringe. It was uncomfortable to watch. The marketing seemed weird. And I realized the moment I started being myself and telling that authentic story, even if it, I thought it wasn't interesting at first, it worked yeah. and it related. And it was, it created trust that is so deep that doesn't just get, you know, thrown away. Like, you know, they don't just change your brand because, you know, prices went up or because, um, you know, it's out of stock. They stay with you. And I think that that's something important for any entrepreneur out there is you, you are your own unlocking. Just make sure to unlock it. It's a great message. And I think, um, you know, it's definitely seems like it served you very well in your journey. And I think also, like, I think about like when I watch your content, you know, if it's video post, whatever it is, um, you can tell that you're just being you and, and that's your honest version of yourself. And that's super inspiring to me, to others, to everyone. So I feel like I uh, just want to say thank you for, you know, being yourself and encouraging and inspiring others. I think that's a great message to get out to um, to anyone looking to be an entrepreneur or not really anyone just in life in general. Well, thank you for giving us a voice, man. I appreciate it. This was a great conversation. And, um, you know, I think, I think the journey of any entrepreneur or any individual is hard. So, um, it doesn't matter if you're a pilot, you know, you're an investment banker or a chocolatier, um, life's hard. And, and I, I just want you to be you. I, I, I swear it's, it's the easiest way to freedom. I love it. Yeah, just be you is the easiest way to freedom. I think that's a great, great stopping point for for where we're at. Um, Jay, this has been a blast, man. Thank you so much for for giving your time. Uh, where can folks go to to get in touch with you with Midday Squares? Like, give us some links. Where should we go to? Yeah, so for Midday Squares, definitely follow our TikTok and our Instagram at Midday Squares. It's a lot of entertainment. For me, add me on LinkedIn, Jake Carls. I'm happy to chat whenever. Get on the call, jam out, brainstorm. I love creativity and stuff. So. Um, hit me up. Don't be shy. And then to find Midday Squares, go on our website, www.middaysquares.com. Um, you can find store locators that have our product. Our product is located in the refrigerated section of every store. Um, we are available at Target, Whole Foods, Sprouts, um, Walmart Canada, uh, many other stores. And yeah, I look forward to connecting with anyone that wants to connect. Amazing. We'll link out to all that in the show notes. Um, Jake, best of luck to you and the Midday Squares team on continuing to disrupt an industry. Um, you guys have done a hell of a job already, and I can't wait to see um, you guys take down the Hershey's, the Mars, and uh, Thessaly's of the world. So best of luck to you and your journey, um, and best of luck in your recovery too, Matt. I hope you feel hope you feel better soon, and you're back at your full full form very soon. That's the most important road to recovery, <laughs> baby. <laughs> love it, love it. All right, my friend, I'll let you get out of here, but thanks again. I'll talk to you real soon. <laughs>